This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The World Cup is one of the top international sporting events, yet for many Americans, particularly African-Americans, it's still an afterthought. Now, a new generation of Black fans is hoping to change that. The MLS, U.S. Soccer Federation, they can do a better job of breaking down these barriers of kind of reconstructing this pay-to-play system that will allow more Black people to participate in the sport. Building Black love for soccer and the World Cup, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Soccer is the sport of the future and always will be. That phrase has kicked around American sports coverage of soccer for decades as commenters explain why the world's most popular sport can't seem to get a foothold in the United States. While the growing Latino population in this country is moving the needle on soccer, for many in the African-American community, the sport still doesn't register. But now, as the World Cup approaches, a new generation of black soccer lovers are trying to get more of us to tune in. Joining us to talk about it is lifelong soccer fan Jermaine Scott. He's a professor of African-American studies and sports history at Florida Atlantic University. Jermaine Scott, welcome to A Word. Thank you so much, Jason. I'm really happy to be here. I'm going to start with a simple question. Do you say soccer or football? And do people throw things at you when you insist it should be called football? Oh, Lord, this is like <laughs> this is like the million dollar question, right? So my most honest response is that I, I use the two terms interchangeably, really depending on the, you know, the crowd that I'm in. Uh, but most times I use soccer. Um, you know, if I'm talking with a with a crowd that's, you know, you know, kind of deep soccer fanatics, then I'll use football. Uh, but usually in my day to day, I use soccer. You know, for, for most Americans, most people who don't know much about the World Cup, what are storylines going into this year's World Cup? What are some interesting things that a casual fan can say, oh, OK, I can get excited about this person or this team? What are the hot stories heading into this year's World Cup? To be honest, a lot of the hot stories, uh, no pun intended, uh, has to do with the World Cup that's, you know, taking place off of the field, right? So not necessarily what's happening on the pitch, right? What's happening on the, you know, the field of play, but what's happening outside uh, of the stadiums, right? These newly built, you know, million dollar stadiums that are being built throughout uh, the country of Qatar. And so, you know, a lot of these storylines have to do with different labor abuses against the migrant workers, the wage theft that's happening with the migrant workers, uh, the discrimination against the LGBTQ communities, um, so there's a lot of social issues and political issues that are surrounding this particular World Cup. Um, and it's not different from other major uh, sporting events that happen, such as the Olympics. When we think about specific countries, I know that Brazil and Germany and England, like their entire existence and self-esteem revolves around the World Cup. And then you've got the United States. Tell us a little bit about the U.S. World Cup team. Are we any good? Do we have any stars? Is there some great story that we're going to learn about throughout the course of these games? What, tell us a little bit about the U.S. World Cup team. As you mentioned you know, in the beginning, soccer in the U.S. has always had a very strange uh, place. And so 
there's always been this push to market soccer as a very American sport, right? We kind of want to make this sport our own. Um, and so we've seen different iterations of that through different leagues. And we've seen, you know, uh, varying amounts of success with the U.S. Uh, national team, right? The U.S. national team was actually, you know, one of the original participants in the first World Cup in 1930. I believe we finished either third or fourth. I mean, you know, it was 1930 and there was a lot of different rules back then. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there was you know, a lot of teams that did not participate. Some teams got in just from, you know, different random circumstances. Uh, but this year, kind of fast forward to this year's World Cup, um, what makes it special for the U.S. is because we really did not qualify for the last World Cup. We were eliminated by Trinidad and Tobago prior to the last World Cup, which was held in Russia. And so this World Cup, when we qualified uh, for the 2022 World Cup, it was a big success. And so there's a lot of hopes with this team. Um, yes, there are a lot of major names on the team. Um, of course, you know, you have the Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney. You know, Christian Pulisic plays for Chelsea uh, in England. Weston McKinney plays for Juventus in Italy. Uh, there's a number of MLS players, Major League Soccer players, so domestic players uh, that are joining the squad. There's a lot of optimism, a lot of hope about this team, again, as a young squad, as a fresh squad. However, you know, the, the soccer tradition in the U.S. is not as rich and is not as deep as the other countries that you mentioned, like Brazil and Germany. And so it's going to be interesting to see uh, how we perform, at least in the group stage. What are the stages for the World Cup? Now, I understand that you have to qualify. So we have sort of qualifying matches. You got to play a bunch of different people. But how does the World Cup actually play out? What are these groups? How do these groups interact with each other? And how does that lead to the final game? Uh, we begin with the group stages. Uh, so there's eight groups of four teams. And the group stages comprise of the each group, uh, each team in the group playing against each other. Um, so it's like a round robin uh, tournament. So each group, each team plays each other once. And then the top two teams from each group then advance to the round of 16. And then from that stage is knockout rounds. So you have the round of 16, quarterfinals, the semifinals, and then the finals. So it starts off with group stages and then the top two teams advance. And then after that, it's knockout rounds. So if you lose, you're out. Now in the group stage, each win is worth three points and a tie is worth one point. And if you lose, you don't get any points. And so that's how you, that's how you determine um, the top two teams in each group. Ah, okay. I didn't understand that. So arguably, like, if other people were playing bad, you could win out of the group stage with a bunch of ties, right? Since it's a point system as opposed to just straight wins. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and sometimes when the when the final points are tied, so say you, say you have two teams with, you know, seven points at the end of the group stage, then it'll go by goal differential. So if you have more goals than the other team, then that will, you know, that will uh, advance you to the next round. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on this year's World Cup. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. 
I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the World Cup with Professor Jermaine Scott. How were you introduced to sort of international soccer? Did you just grow up watching it at home? Did you play at one point and and this was your aspiration? What brought you into caring about international soccer? So soccer was the number one sport uh, in my household growing up, right? So uh, I'm of Jamaican descent, so soccer was just always, always there in the house. So yeah, I, I, you know, I grew up playing it. My older brother, you know, played it. He kind of led the way, you know, with the captain of the team. And so we always kind of had like a model to follow. And yeah, I mean, my first World Cup that I really remember is the 1998 World Cup held in France. It was just the first World Cup that I could vividly remember. I remember watching, you know, Ronaldo on the Brazil team just kind of light it up. Later on down the year, I started to realize, wow, you know, soccer wasn't just entertainment for me, right? But it was one of the first spaces that I started to ask questions about race, right, and nation. And so I would look at a Colombian team and see a team full of Black Colombians, right? And, you know, it would blow my mind as a 12-year-old, as a you know, as a 13-year-old, as a you know, watching, a, you know, a, a Colombian team full of Black Colombians, right? You know, like I, my, my racial consciousness was so far away from what race looked like in Colombia, and so soccer, I found, you know, was, was one of the first spaces that I started to ask questions um, about race, right? I remember watching my older brother at a soccer practice one day, and it was one of the first moments where, you know, a white person, like, asked me what I was doing there. Like, why, you know, like, why was I running or, you know, something. It was just a, it was a crazy incident, but it happened at a soccer field. Soccer was always a very um, fun sport to play. It was a very entertaining sport, but it was also a very educational space uh, that allowed me to ask questions that I probably wouldn't have asked uh, otherwise. One of the things I notice, and, and I see the same thing in the Olympics, but it's more extreme in the World Cup, is you'll see these countries that are 94, 95, 96% white, but they somehow manage to field these majority black soccer teams. And in many instances, these players aren't necessarily natural born citizens, right? They're, they're born in Cameroon, but they're playing for the England team. They're born in Ghana, but they're playing for the team in France. Because some of these European countries, certainly Germany and France, citizenship is extremely hard to come by if you're not born there. What are some of the politics of a sort of citizenship and identity that happen with some of these World Cup squads? Yeah, so a lot of these international teams um, use, you know, first generation, second generation, third generation players, right? So a lot of times um, we'll have, you know, players that, you know, whose parents were born in Senegal, they may have been born in France, right? And so, you know, or, or they may have been born in Senegal and then traveled to France, right? Attained citizenship and now they can, you know, play for France or um, vice versa, right? We have... Um, you know, a Senegalese player, Sadio Mane, right? Where I think he's really kind of, you know, challenging this, this this trend for a lot of players to kind of return back to their African nation, right? A lot of African players um, are, you know, a lot of players of African descent often play with the European nation, right? And, and that relationship is, you know, I mean, we have to talk about it. That relationship is a relationship, you know, shaped by a history of colonialism, right? And so, you know, Senegal and France, right? Ghana and, and England, Nigeria and England, all, you know, all of these colonial roots and colonial relationships are now kind of oozing back out in the contemporary moment. And we see this on the soccer pitch, right? Uh, Qatar itself is a very interesting case study when thinking about citizenship and thinking about what does it mean to be a citizen in Qatar, 
where we have this academy called the Aspire Football Academy and this initiative called the Football Dreams Program where they're basically recruiting soccer players, soccer talent around the world, particularly uh, in Africa, and bringing them over to Qatar, right? Putting them in, you know, this academy and over a number of years, they can become Qatari citizens, right? So when we, when we watch the Qatar national team, we'll see a lot of African players, right? We see a lot of players of African descent, and that is because of Qatar's, um, you know, finessing of these kind of eligibility citizenship rules, um, you know, that have been in place. You know, in fact, FIFA itself back in, I think, 2004 was they clamped down on the eligibility rules, particularly because Qatar was trying to get um, a number of Brazilian players to basically, you know, play for the Qatar team, right, become Qatari citizens. And so FIFA cracked down on that because of Qatar. But Qatar has found a way to continue to do this. And so it's a very fascinating thing to look at. You know, when we look at France in the last World Cup, they were often labeled as the last African team, right, to be in the World Cup because the majority of their team was, you know, players of African descent. So it's something fascinating that we see, uh, you know, throughout the world. I researched the most popular sports amongst African-Americans and international soccer is near the bottom. It is right below Major League Baseball, which has been like, bleeding black fans for 20 years and right above NASCAR, right? <laughs> like so, so black Americans tend to not care about international soccer. Why do you think that is? Why do you think a sport that, again, at least at the international level, has a lot of prominent black faces, why do you think it hasn't caught on with the African-American community in the United States? There's two answers to that. The first answer is a historical answer. The second answer is an, is, is an economic answer. And so the, the history of soccer in the U.S., again, has always been this effort to Americanize the game. And, th- and we really see this takeoff um, in the 1950s and 1960s, particularly on the youth levels, where the game is, is, is marketed as one, an American sport, as a suburban sport, right, as a, as a sport for the suburban family and as a safe sport. Right. And so the way the sport was marketed, again, during the 1960s, at the same time where we have an increase of black players in basketball and in football, we see sport kind of marketed not only as a safe sport for the suburban family, but as a white sport, right, as a white American sport. That tag has, you know, lasted right up, you know, up until this day. We still talk about, you know, suburban soccer moms. So that's kind of the history of how soccer has become in the U.S., more or less a white sport, right? It was literally marketed as an American, say, you know, i.e. white sport. But the economic piece is this system in U.S. soccer that is known as a pay-to-play. To participate in the best uh, soccer leagues, to participate on the best soccer teams throughout the country is very, very expensive, like thousands and thousands of dollars, right? So it literally prices out a large segment of the country that I'm sure would naturally gravitate to the sport uh, because of how little it requires to play the sport, right? I mean, all you literally all you need is a ball. You know, if you have a you know a rock or two, you can make some goalposts, right? And then there you go, you have your game. I think the two explanations, right, the historical and the economic, are related, right? And so to say that there's a pay-to-play system in the U.S. is to suggest that the U.S. wants to keep soccer. 
um, looking like a certain part of the country, right? They want to continue to market soccer um, in a particular way. We see some changes, right? I mean, with this with this current U.S. team, right? I mean, as you asked me before, what's kind of special about this U.S. team? Another thing that's very special is that there's a lot of black players on the team, right? So we're seeing a change, um, you know, from, you know, the early days of the U.S. men's national team to now we see, a, you know, a higher representation of, of, of black players, but, you know, the MLS, U.S. Soccer Federation, they can do a better job of breaking down these barriers of kind of reconstructing this pay to play system that will allow more black people to participate in the sport. And we see this throughout the world. Right. And, in, in, you know, in other countries, soccer is a very inexpensive sport to participate in. Right. All of the all of the soccer academies, you know, you're getting scholarships to go to these academies. Right. While in the U.S., we have to pay. Right. And so there's. So there's all of these different economic and historical reasons why African-Americans uh, do not necessarily gravitate towards the game. Although there is a history. There is a history of this. We just don't know that history. We're going to take a short break and we come back. More about the World Cup and soccer in the United States with Jermaine Scott. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about the upcoming World Cup with Professor Jermaine Scott. One of the things that's also struck me, the times I've paid attention to sort of European soccer, you have these consistent issues of sort of racial taunts and harassment. How is that addressed in the World Cup? I'm pretty sure they wouldn't want a bunch of people using slurs on an international stage. Right. You know, FIFA has uh, done a pretty poor job of trying to walk the line of, you know, being anti-racist while still allowing, while still laying down the conditions for racism to continue. Even on the World Cup, of course, you know, we have instances um, of racism. The way FIFA responds, you know, is to launch an investigation, right? And this is kind of, and it's not just FIFA, this is a lot of the, you know, the the governing bodies of soccer throughout the world, they'll launch an investigation. If they find evidence, um, you know, that, that a racial slur or that racism occurred, punishments will be handed down in the form of uh, stadium bans. So, so sometimes the teams may have to play in an empty stadium. Um, sometimes those fans will be banned either for a certain number of years or for life. So there's varying levels of punishments, but a lot of critics think it's not enough. And so there's a number of different ways that FIFA could respond. You know, I think what's interesting now is you know, coming into this World Cup, there's a lot of political and social issues that are surrounding this World Cup. And the president of FIFA, Gianni uh, Infantino, has come out and encouraged the players not to talk about these political issues, right? So he's he's basically saying, you know, we're going to keep politics out of this tournament. It's very clear how FIFA wants to proceed. But it'll be interesting to see if we do have uh, a racist incident, how FIFA will respond. What would playing well mean? to our team? What should I be hoping that my U.S. team can do? I think playing well is to advance to the, the second round, right, which will be the round of 16. So, so make it out of the group. Uh, ideally, are, you know, like a lot of critics say that, you know, it'll be England 
and the U.S. or England and Wales. As an African-American, understanding the history of the U.S., I always have a complicated relationship with supporting the U.S., especially with soccer, right? Because the U.S. national soccer team has historically been white. You know, it's historically been predominantly white. I'm getting more warm, right, to, to the team because of the increased representation of, of black players. But, you know, I'm very interested to see how France does, right? I'm very interested to see how Senegal and Cameroon and the rest of the African nations do. Um, you know, unfortunately, my beloved Jamaica uh, has not made it. The women's team made it for the, for the Women's World Cup next year. But yeah, so, you know, there's a number of different teams that I'm supporting. I like to support, I like to go in each tournament, you know, supporting the diaspora right see not necessarily supporting you know particular nation states but you know supporting the players and and you know this like the diaspora in general but yes yes let's see let's see how the u.s does if, if we can make it to the second round i think it'll be a success if you can make it past that second round i mean it's i think it's definitely a you know at least a moral victory for the u.s for sure so i always like to end on something super duper optimistic uh, I, I now have an idea that, that we should be able to make it out of the group stage. And here's the thing, and, and, and similar to you, I, I I always root for whichever team comes from the continent. I'm generally going to root for anybody black. That's generally how I operate. But what I've always learned is sort of like the consequences of losing in the World Cup are bigger for other countries. Let's say your best case scenario is the U.S. gets out of the group stage and and gets into the, the Sweet 16. How do you think that'll change the perception or the excitement about the World Cup when it comes to America in 2026? I mean, it'll definitely increase the excitement for sure, right? I mean, it's definitely going to generate a lot of excitement amongst all the soccer heads and just kind of the general population, right, of, of the U.S. I think generally, you know, it's going to it's going to really uh, increase that that excitement. But I think just naturally, with the World Cup coming to the U.S., I mean, I think we saw with the announcement of the different cities, right? We saw the amount of excitement that's already here in the U.S. right for for 2026. Um, so, I mean, if we make it. If we have a good performance in this World Cup, it's only going to set our expectations higher. And of course, because we'll be a host, we already know that we're going to be uh, part of the tournament. Right. And so I think, you know, with a deep run into the World Cup, if we can make it to a quarterfinals, if we can make it to a semifinals, I think that's really going to give the country um, and the players, of course. Right. Uh, the confidence that, that they need to perform well in 2026. Jermaine Scott is a professor of African-American history at Florida Atlantic University. Thanks so much for joining us today on A Word. Thanks so much, Jason. And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.